Welcome to Etc., where we go beyond the talking points in politics, ethics, philosophy, religion, and pop culture and our pursuit of truth. My name is Beth Milligan. I'm a co-host of this podcast. And I'm Anthony Weber. I'm a co-host. And today, Beth, I want to talk about toxic women. Oh, that's not how I thought we were going to start. Oh, my bad. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Did you mean toxic men, Anthony? Well, sure. We can get to that, too. Toxic masculinity, perhaps? Sure. We can get to that also. Okay. Maybe we can tackle both. That would be great. All right. Well, which one should we tackle first? Well, I think, you know, honestly, the more pressing issue is toxic masculinity. <laughs> so we can we can see. When Anthony and I talked about doing a podcast like this um, on this topic, we had started, I think, as a frame of reference for both of us as the Gillette commercial mm-hmm. that had come out in the last couple months. Um, it was pretty controversial. It provoked a lot of interesting responses. Um, we can talk a little bit about the, what the, was in the commercial itself, but that got us going on this idea of toxic masculinity, which is coming up a lot in the culture lately with the Me Too movement, um, with some of the other social movements we're seeing with our political administration. Um, but then to, you know, in, in a typical Anthony and I style, fair being fair, the question also came up, is there such a thing as toxic femininity? That question, I will admit right at the start of this podcast, makes me a little uncomfortable. <laughs> that makes um, me uncomfortable. But I'm I'm happy to explore it with you. So maybe we could start with the Gillette commercial. I'd be curious if you maybe you could describe a little bit and what you thought about the commercial. I have the exact text from the commercial. Okay, great. So this won't do justice to it, obviously, but this is uh, the way it played out. Voiceover, bullying, the Me Too movement, violence, pornography, sexual harassment. Is this the best a man can get? Is it? We can't hide from it. It's been going on for far too long. We can't laugh it off. Making the same old excuses and you see a group of men kind of going, boys will be boys. But something finally changed. And here you see a female news anchor saying allegations involving sexual assault, sexual harassment, etc. And there will be no going back because we believe in the best in men. Um, Go to Terry Crews saying men need to hold other men accountable. And there's two other clips showing guys stopping some other people from harassing and catcalling a woman. To say the right thing, to act the right way, some already are in ways big and small, and you see clips of men playing with their daughters, connecting across racial lines, and stopping stopping bullying. But some is not enough, because the boys watching today will be the men of tomorrow. Real scene and sell razors. <laughs> So what did you think about this commercial when you saw it for the first time? All right. So my first impression when I saw it was that I really liked it. Mm-hmm. Um, as I started talking with other guys about it, because I have some friends who really disliked it, it struck me that that commercial was almost like a Rorschach test, hmm. that it revealed more about the people who saw it that was actually revealed in the commercial itself. Mm-hmm. In the sense that, depending on people's past experiences, this was everything from the kind of home you were raised in to how much you had maybe been in an environment where men were celebrated as men versus criticized for being men. It seemed like there was a lot of factors. And as I had conversations with people, it made sense to me why some people reacted to it. It pushed buttons about negative ways in which they felt they had been dismissed simply for being a man. Mm-hmm. I haven't had experiences like that. So I saw it more as if this, these were my boys or if, I, if my boys were watching this commercial... I'd like that. Yeah, I want you to stop the bullying. I think that it's, I don't like the idea of guys catcalling women. I, I, I think it's dishonoring. And as I looked at all these different things, you know, the men playing with their daughters, it felt to me like they were showing just healthy relational men 
treating other human beings with dignity mm-hmm. versus some stuff you saw at the beginning that was different. One of the scenes, I talked with this with my class at NMC, one of the scenes that caught a lot of people's attention was in the commercial, you had a row of men standing behind their grills mm-hmm. with their arms crossed saying, boys will be boys. That scene, I sometimes wonder if that had been cut, how much different people would have responded because mm-hmm. that really seemed to touch a nerve like, really? We like to grill? And so suddenly now we're these ogres standing with our arms barred and you know, immune to the rest of the world. And it, it was interesting to me to hear that because that is not how I saw the ad trying to portray it. But nonetheless, that was a very real sense of anger and discouragement in a number of my friends. Hmm. So when I saw it for the first time, I had a positive reaction to it also. Uh, I thought it was an important message. Um, I thought it was... The message seemed to be like, you know, it's a men's product, right? So it seemed to be men saying to men, like, hey, we need to be better. Like, we're kind of, it was this sort of a call to accountability mm-hmm. um, or saying like, you know, we kind of believe the best in men, like let's, let's be better versions of ourselves. Um, so it felt like men talking to men to me and, and I felt like a positive message. Um, when I first started hearing about the backlash, I was not surprised because anytime I've seen an article or any kind of news segment about toxic masculinity, there's always this backlash from And I would say, to me, it feels similar as when a white person is accused of being racist. There's this trigger, knee-jerk reaction of frustration on the part of a certain segment of men. Sometimes it feels a little bit like thou doth protest too much Mm -hmm. (laughs) of being like, you know, this is just perpetuating the stereotypes of men and men aren't like this. And this is, you know, you get into talk about triggering and snowflakes and trying to be woke, all these kind of conversations. So I kind of rolled my eyes when I first heard about backlash because I was like, of course, men are going to be critical of a commercial that's critical of them. Um, I will say, in the time since then, I've done, especially in advance of this podcast, tried to do some reading and to see if there could be maybe some thoughtful critiques or some fair criticism about the commercial. And I, I, I understand there... I sort of sympathize with the frustration of a certain segment of men who feels like a lot of the men in the commercial are caricatures. Mm-hmm. Or very stereotypical, and you mentioned the the grilling aspect, if that's, you know, kind of a cliched symbol to use. Um, I, I, I think the other more valid uh, criticism is whether Gillette is the right messenger for this commercial. You know, right. they're ultimately trying to sell a product, and so anything that Gillette does as a company is in service of their profits or bottom line. So I share the cynicism of some people... <coughs> of becoming, um, of companies trying to glom onto positive social media messages or social Mm -hmm. activism to sell a product. Does it feel like virtue signaling? Yeah, right, exactly. And so that is a really interesting conversation that we could, a whole other sidebar we can get into sometime of 
when are commercial for-profit entities allowed to weigh into the moral market, you know, if ever and for what reason? Yeah, because my one thought, Beth, is I think companies do that all the time with commercials. They're always tapping into something that's capturing people's attention. Right. And so you see that kind of signaling constantly, but there was something about this commercial that really stepped on people's toes. Yeah, and you've seen it with, like, Nike. Nike has done a lot of virtue signaling with, you know, Colin Kaepernick and having some deliberate sort of on-the-nose commercials Mm -hmm. about social activism. I would say maybe some of it has is tied to how long your company has a history of being an activist in a particular arena. I mean, Nike has always been, I think, a pretty pretty bold as an advertiser. Mm-hmm. Um, Gillette feels like maybe they were being a little opportunistic in in that message. You might feel the same way, and this isn't a fair analogy, but it's just one that comes to mind. If right after nine eleven, someone had started using nine eleven imagery to sell Mountain Dew, or right. you would have gone, right. no, that's not appropriate. Yeah. So there, there's something about the inappropriateness of the of what they're trying to piggyback on. There is just for fun, uh, if you want to have a good chuckle, just because you mentioned it, there are, there is in fact a subgenre of companies who have posted tweets on like 9-11 anniversaries that also subtly plug their products. Really? And they get hilariously taken down by the internet anytime. Oh, I hope so. Like yes. really bad, like crass commercial products that try to be like, you know, never forget, buy peeps or whatever it is, <laughs> you know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> wow. So I share the cynicism a little bit of like whether or not Gillette was the right person to, mm-hmm. to wade into the waters. Okay. I still found the message compelling, though. Um, Can I add something yeah, else about please. the message? Because this, I'm going to come back to this Rorschach test. The boy's wrestling on the ground. Mm-hmm. The first time I saw that commercial, I thought this one boy is beating the other kid up. Mm-hmm. And nobody was pulling the kid off, and eventually someone does. But when I mentioned this to some of my friends, they didn't see it that way at all. They thought it was just two boys wrestling, and boys like to wrestle. And so the commercial was an indictment of just the fact that boys like to wrestle. Hmm. So I would add that if you saw the commercial and you really thought that this was showing two boys wrestling and no, men should not let their boys roughhouse together. Hmm. And you, what was the other thing I mentioned that um, people read two different ways? It's the grills the, or something else? The grilling. Um, there was another, another part that I realized I saw very differently than other people did. I understood why someone would find the commercial immediately offensive mm. because depending on how, depending on the lens you viewed it through, there were aspects that could be seen as simply saying, you're a dude and that means you're bad. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I just didn't see it that way. And I think in hindsight, as I've looked at it, I don't think that's what the commercial was intending to say. Mm-hmm. I think they were trying to show one boy bullying or beating another kid up and finally another guy steps in and goes, hey, don't don't bully people. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense to me for someone to do something like that. So, Yeah, I you know, one of the articles that um, I found that was talking about this w- was um, a branding firm had kind of done some market research after the commercial came out. And they were saying that the feedback that they were getting is, quote, men are saying we feel marginalized, criticized, and accused rather than feeling inspired, empowered, and encouraged. So when they were kind of getting men's feedback about the Gillette commercial, they were hearing from a lot of men that the commercial sort of felt like shaming to them or accusatory rather than inspiring or uplifting. Or That's, that's funny because I found it somewhat inspiring. Yeah. Like, so I do think it might be somewhat to do with the man who's watching the commercial. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's, that's a fascinating thing to me. I don't often find commercials like that. This one is so divisive. I think there has to be more to it than just the commercial. I mean, I think the thing that's challenging is this, this again, this idea of toxic masculinity. A lot. I've read a lot of articles, and it, it, I think it's very tied to the Me Too movement. Um, it is telling to me when someone has that reactionary knee-jerk response of saying, um, you know, this is BS or this is any of these commercials are just coming down on men. It's, it's stereotypical. Because I would think, like, and we'll talk about it, but the idea of, like, toxic femininity, I don't think is as well-defined culturally. But if someone was saying... If someone was challenging something negative that women did, I don't know that my reaction would just be to be automatically dismissive of it. If it doesn't apply to me personally, I'm still interested in the message for women in general. Especially if you felt it was coming from women toward women. Right, right. And 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 maybe this didn't feel like that to some men because maybe it felt like a brand lecturing in them instead of other men. I wonder how much of it has to do with a general sense that men have culturally right now that they have suddenly become the bad guys in mm-hmm. the sense that who is the one group of people that has the least claim to um, any type of status of uh, they've been oppressed or they're the ones with the most privilege? That's probably a better way to put it. Mm-hmm. I think it would be men and specifically white men. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if it doesn't reflect a, a breaking point in some ways for a lot of men going, wait a minute. I, I seem to be the villain in most cultural narratives right now, and I don't understand why. Even if they see what has happened in a broader context of what has happened, what men have done to the world, so to speak, they look at their own lives and they go, but I, I wasn't that kind of man. I didn't do that. And maybe this was just a straw that broke the camel's back for a lot of men going, that's it. I am tired of constantly being portrayed as having something wrong with me. I'm, I'm not every other man out there. I'm not all these bad guys. I'm me. Deal with me as me. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, I, I understand why that argument is made. I would just say I didn't feel that way as I saw the commercial. Yeah. And this is why I think there's a really strong intersectionality with this issue with race, too. Because I see very clear parallels between them, and at least I can relate to one, which is being white. You know, I'm not a white man, but I'm a white woman. I see the exact same thing happen with race, where a white person is accused in some way of being racist. Or maybe they feel like they're being accused just because they're white. Mm -hmm. Like, I can't control being white. I can't control (laughs) being a man. Right. So there's this defensiveness of like, hey, I was born this way, too. I'm a white man. I can't help it. Um, and it doesn't mean that I'm this villain. What I would say is I, as a, a white woman, used to be very re- reactionary that way, too. If someone would say, for example, if not that I've been accused very often of being racist, but let's say a context came up in that situation or I felt somehow I was being accused of not being sensitive enough to race. I had that knee-jerk thing of like, hey, I'm not racist. That's not fair. Like, don't characterize me just because I'm a white woman. 
But what I think I learned over time, and this took really listening to people of color, and I would maybe say to men who are listening, this would really take listening to women, Mm -hmm. um, would be that even in situation, first of all, you might not, you might be blind to the ways in which you are uh, exhibiting toxic masculinity. You might have internalized behaviors and things you don't even realize in your life are toxic because you've been around them so long. Same thing with race. The other thing is that I think the larger issue is there are systems in place that we benefit from as men mm-hmm. or as white people that is really impossible, I think, sometimes for us to understand because we haven't lived if you're a man, as a woman, and don't know what they constantly deal with on a day-to-day basis. And as a white person, I don't know what it's like to go through life as a black person in the constant little ways that they're marginalized and oppressed and put down. So I absolutely, like, the work I've been doing on myself is to say, even if I don't feel like I'm racist in the sense that I don't discriminate for friendships or other things based on skin color... I might be racist in the fact that I have benefited as a white person from a system of oppression that Wait, has that, put other people down. But that wouldn't make you racist. I think I think that I I would actually challenge that a little bit. I think the modern definition, so, some of the definitions I've been reading would say if you have benefited from racist systems, you are participating in a racist system. So what your work needs to be is to recognize how you're benefiting from it and try to actively dismantle it as much as you can. Sure. If, if you're, yeah. So I, I think what the problem is, as for the race issue, people don't think of racism as something other than discriminating against skin color. And at least like some of the learning that I'm doing right now, and it doesn't mean it's right, it's just what I feel like I'm trying to educate myself about from black communities is that it's not just about whether you're friendly to me or not because of my skin color. It's about, are you aware of all of the privilege and benefits you get as a white person? And if you're okay with just perpetuating that system and it actively puts down other people, then you are still participating in a racist system. Yeah. My, my only pushback there, Beth, was that because it is such a loaded word. If you hear the word racist, you think KKK, you think white supremacist, and, and to say, to use the same word for someone who has unwittingly grown up in a system, I would freely acknowledge that I have, mm-hmm. right? I've unwittingly grown up in a system that if you trace American history back, clearly there was a systematic way in which there was an oppression of black people that continued past slavery. And I watched a documentary on this on Netflix recently, 13, hmm. it had something to do with the 13th Amendment. Oh, it was fascinating and terrifying. Hmm. Um, terrifying is not the right word. I wasn't frightened. It was, oh, I, it was sobering hmm. just to realize how long that as a nation there was a systemic attempt to continue to keep black people, quote unquote, in their place. Mm-hmm. Now, have I benefited from that in the sense that I now have access to things and have a legacy that has led up to my life? that others did not. Absolutely. Does that make me a racist? No. But I think what you're saying is if I become aware of that Mm -hmm. and then just give a big shrug of my shoulders and go, oh, well, uh, there's a whole group of people who are generally 
um, not able to benefit from society like I am, and I just don't care, mm-hmm. now we're into a different kind of territory. I don't hate them, but I've accepted something that ought not be as if it was acceptable. Is, is yeah. that kind of where you're going with that? Yeah, and I, and I understand why you're clarifying it, because I, I understand how loaded the word is. I guess I'm just seeing you know, racism and also, let's say, sexism as spectrums. Um, rather than just the cartoon villainy we think of, yeah, yeah. of toxic masculinity or racism. I think there are a lot of things, again, that we internalize. So the, the challenge is not, are you an outright horrible toxic man or a blatant KKK racist? Mm-hmm. But one, are you actually doing some behaviors, like I think maybe Joe Biden would be a good example of this. Are you doing behaviors that make women uncomfortable, but you your intention is good? Well, guess what? Your intention doesn't matter. Right. You if can it, see all of his greatest hits on YouTube. Right. <laughs> if it makes women uncomfortable, your intent doesn't matter. It's how other people are experiencing it. And then, and then even, so you have like, you have like basically conscious, subconscious, and unconscious ways that you could be sexist or racist. That's a I good, think. that's a good distinction. Yeah. I like the spectrum language also. We typically only use that with something like autism, but I wonder if it would be helpful to start thinking of it in the sense of, am I on the racism spectrum? Right. Am I on the, the toxic masculinity spectrum? Yeah. And in some ways, I suspect we all are there somewhere, even if it's just a little bit. And the question we try to ask ourselves honestly is, where are we on this scale? Right. Because, like, if I actively fight for the rights of minorities, which I try to do Mm -hmm. in my life, but I'm in a wealthy white neighborhood and I see a black person one night and think they're out of place or I'm suspicious, like, I need to, like... You know, it might just be that instinctual reaction, but like that's the moment I need to confront that. You and need to come to grips with that. Come yeah. to grips with that. And mm-hmm. I'm and I'm talking about race a lot, but just because I see so much of the parallels with this toxic masculinity conversation where it's such a fraught word and people are so afraid of being vilified, particularly when mm-hmm. the social pressure is so strong right now, like with Me Too. No guy wants to be like thrown in with the Harvey Weinsteins of the world. And I've heard so many of my male friends say to me, you know, I'm, I'm a good guy, or like, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to talk to women right. now? I don't know. And I do have to say, we've talked about this a little bit before, Yeah, I'm not that sympathetic. <laughs> I really want to be. I'm, I'm, I'm just being honest that mm-hmm. it's like, you know, men have had it, I feel like, so good for so long that having to wrestle a little bit with what does it mean to be a good man it's like maybe that's a question men should have been wrestling with for a longer time didn't we talk about this in terms of we did famous movies that have scenes that are now fairly cringeworthy we're like yeah a whole generation was raised on seeing that as a good idea yeah and we did do a podcast about me too yeah. so i don't want to yeah. get too much off on that but i just I think it's maybe, and that's why I'm totally willing to talk with you about toxic femininity, too, and what that might look like, is I don't think the knee-jerk response is the best one. So I'm going to broaden this out. and Let's go with the toxic spectrum. And this can include now uh, men and women. This is a broader category because I feel like your distinction about racism might be a helpful one to talk about this whole masculinity-femininity issue. And that is I might be a guy who, because I'm raised as a guy, um, I have access to things or I have privileges or there's assumed ways I can move through the world that I don't even realize are stepping on people's toes. Maybe not overtly and hopefully not overtly uh, really damaging people, but there's just, I don't think about it. I'll speak over a woman in a conversation. I will 
I'm having a hard time coming with other examples, but it would just be one. I'm mm-hmm. just not thinking about it. It's kind of a, the environment I grew up in. So, okay. Then there would be the more maybe consciously calloused masculinity where like you recognize uh, I'm bigger and stronger and so I can exert my force a little bit more if I want to and you're still not meaning to hurt anyone but you're it's still happening uh, but then I would think of a third one and this is where I really think of toxic masculinity in particular where it's men who recognize I am damaging the world hmm. as I do this I know that I'm leaving a wake of damage behind me and I just don't care so when I think of toxic, I feel like that that word is overused because it's trying to apply to all of those scenarios that mm-hmm. I just gave, and mm-hmm. I don't think they're all on the same ground. Hmm. What do you think of that distinction? So also somewhat on a spectrum? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair. Do you feel like that, do you feel like that qualifier toxic is counterproductive in some cases like are, do you feel like it's putting men off because it's lumping them into more severe categories than they feel that they're in yeah that, okay that's where I would see it happening okay because I think most men most men don't think of themselves as having bad hearts when it comes to women mm-hmm. okay I'm really painting with a broad brush here <laughs> I'm trying to decide Beth if I'm digging a hole that I don't want to climb out of um Uh, Let's put it a different way. If you watch a movie, Mm -hmm. and there's a guy in the movie that would be a classic, toxic, masculine guy. Mm -hmm. He is using his power, his strength, his... And we should get into some of the characteristics later, but he's a jerk. Mm -hmm. Most people watching the movie see it for what it is. Very few people, even men, would look at that and go, you're a great guy. I really wish I was you. Hmm. Most of them, I think, see it and go... Uh, but no. They might walk away and be more similar to that character than they realize, but they don't want to be that character. Most men, I would argue. Hmm. I think there are certainly some men who like the idea of being able to lord it over others and uh, kind of take a Nietzschean approach that the only thing that matters is power. If it hurts other people, it's perfectly fine. I definitely think there's men like that. I definitely think there's women like that. We'll get to that in a little bit. But I think generally men have a sense as they look around them of how men ought to be. And boy, Beth, even as I'm talking about this, I really think that depends on what kind of communities you come from. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so no, I, I might need to walk that back. I feel like I am using too broad of a brush uh, because I do know some men who just take for granted and celebrate things that I think of as really unfortunate and they don't see it. Well, I'm really curious about how, if you don't mind talking about this, because I think you would probably have some experience with this. Um, so I, you know, we both have a church background. Mm-hmm. Yours is a little more active, let's say, than mine is now. One of us is a pastor. Currently. Yeah. <laughs> and one of us has left the church. We'll let you guys decide which is which. Um <laughs> No, but when I grew up in the church, and I still follow a lot of, like, Christian publications, so I still see articles about this, there was a lot of emphasis on gender roles in mm-hmm. the the preachings that I heard growing up. So there was, you know, the famous, I think, is it Proverbs 31, about the woman describing the, the perfect wife and how she leads her household, and it was like, this was always told to women in the church, like, this is the embodiment of what you're supposed to do. It's kind of, by the way, this woman is like the cliche she, yeah. of the person who has it all, does it all. She's the Bible's Wonder Woman. Yeah, yeah. she's got like 10 kids, she's like feeding the sheep, she's at the market. <laughs> 
Yeah, she's 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 hot. She's savvy. She's holy pure. I mean, it's it's a pretty high standard that that Proverbs thirty one sets up there. But tied to that was also, you know, this is what men are supposed to be like. And a lot of times, I mean, some of those traits might have been admirable. A lot of the teachings felt harmful to me. Mm -hmm. One, because uh, most often what was reiterated to me was men are the head of households. Men are the decision makers. Uh, Women submit to your husbands. Um, that often often translated into power structures of the church. So women were not allowed to teach or preach or hold power positions. I know that's relaxed a lot more even, I think, in the last 10 years since I've been in church. But still, I think uh, it sounds like from articles I've read that power structure dynamic is still an issue. Having Well, ahead. just news stories in the last two years. You've yeah. seen some big names fall, and I think, in, in the church. Mm-hmm. And I think we would describe what has come out about their lives as something we would associate with toxic masculinity in the church that had structures around it that, at minimum, protected or overlooked. Yeah. yeah. And there was this very famous Christian book that I'm sure you're familiar with called Wild at Heart that you're cringing right now as yeah. I describe your face, that really enforced these gender norms of, like, men are warriors, protectors, you know, they are, this is what they were called to be by God, and women are, like, princesses who need to be rescued and want to be saved and cherished and honored and, you know, put on a shelf, kind of. But I heard that messaging from the church all growing up, and I think the ways that was damaging was not only that it reinforced power structures that put women below men, but it also attributed strictly these traits to men and women so that, you know, if you were women, you were supposed to act such and such, such, such a way, and men were supposed to act such and such, such a way. If you don't climb mountains and have a beard, you're not a man. Right, and women are supposed to be sort of meek and docile and submissive, and so any intermixing of those gender roles of a woman being strong and a warrior or a man being, you know, the irony to me in all of this, of course, is that I think throughout the Bible, both of these feminine and masculine terms are used to describe God. Mm-hmm. And I, to me, I think the beauty of the Bible is that there's sort of this fluidity of gender that maybe we all have access to traits that we need in certain situations. So here's the theological background of the Bible. Yeah. That whatever may you, th- you may think of how to read Genesis 1 or 2, one thing is clear. What is stated is that Men and women are created in the image of God. It says God created men and women in his image. Both of them bear his image. Mm-hmm. So there, there's something about men and women together combined represent the fullness of this image of God. Mm. So yes, very much so. And I think that pervasiveness of defined gender roles has spread throughout the church to such a degree that one, it, it definitely impacts, I think, how the church looks at um, gender identity and sexuality issues because it's a very neat and tidy metaphor to have the bride and the groom and husband and wife, and they were created for these binary, separate dual roles. I understand the beauty and the appeal of that metaphor. Complementarianism, it's called. Yes. I think real life throughout nature is much more messy and fluid and overlapping than that, but I get why... Christians are appealed to by this sort of neat binary, although I don't think it exists in real life. Um, the other part of it that is challenging is like if you ever try to describe God as a woman to like an old school traditional Christian man, <laughs> you can just watch the hackles come up, like just using she instead of he mm-hmm. and pronouns to refer to God. It's this like old school reflex. I'm not saying all men, but particularly men 
don't like it, even though God clearly doesn't have a penis. He's not a male entity. It's, God is spirit. It's a spirit. Yep. Uh, whatever And whatever God is, if you believe God exists, is way bigger than our definition of what a human is, right? But it's just these gender things I just find throughout the church are so rigid. Beth, you're you're opening up so many cans of worms. <laughs> I can't close them all back up. I don't know if we can get up, them all in yeah, one podcast. Yeah. I'm sorry, um, but I'm just curious. Whatever you want to share about that. So, think? yeah, I think the Bible is clear that God is spirit. Um, it, the Christian claim is that God was embodied in Jesus, who, of course, was male. Mm-hmm. And so the Bible is full of masculine terminology. Um. I feel like if we're going to explore that further, we need to do an entirely different podcast about this issue. Uh, One of the things I would note about the history of the churches grappling with this is that I think the church lost its way from the vision of the New Testament. And, wow, so I'm going to say in two or three minutes what um, thousands of books have been written about here. So as briefly as I can, the early church was flooded with women. To the point that the Romans mocked the church for filling up with women. Because at that time, culturally, women, it was a man's culture, a man's world. And that was for the Romans, the Greeks, and the Jews. And the church filled up with women and with slaves. And the the watching world was kind of aghast. It was like, what kind of crazy movement is taking all <laughs> these weak people from us? But women found the church to be a place of flourishing and of hope and of life. And this is where we could have a whole other podcast where we explore what that looked like. Uh, One of the key things is that when you read the writings of Paul, who's often portrayed as something of a misogynist, and I really recommend a book by Sarah Rudan called Paul Among the People. It's a fantastic exploration of how what Paul offered at that time was remarkably countercultural and why it was so compelling to women. So, for example, the phrase in the Bible that gets a lot of press is, women submit to your husbands. As Rudan points out, that's what everybody believed at that time. This wasn't news to Jews, Romans, or Greeks. That's what was expected. So for Paul to write that, everybody gave a big collective shrug. Mm -hmm. But then Paul said something to men in the church that was not said to men anywhere else in the world at that time. And that is, uh, men, you will love your wife as Christ loved the church, and that means you will lay down your life for her. In that sense, you will submit to her, and and now you give everything for your wife. This was groundbreaking. Mm -hmm. And you actually, as you go through the household codes in the New Testament, what you see men being required to do for their wives and for their children were entirely at odds with what all three of those groups had previously been saying. So I think you see in the New Testament this shift in what some have called this trajectory. Like, we've been getting it wrong. Hmm. Time to right the ship and go this direction. I think the church historically over 2,000 years often lost its way on that. And I do believe you are seeing a recorrecting of this, where they are revisiting uh, what is what does it mean for men. Uh, so the Bible's clear: uh, husbands love your wives, um, wives love your husbands. Honor, submission—all of those words are used mutually as you read the entirety of the New Testament. And recognizing there's been a failure of men in particular to honor. The women around them in ways they should have. So I think even as our culture is wrestling with the Me Too movement in a very particular way, the church in the last decade or two has really been reevaluating um, that particular thing. A couple summers ago, I went back to my old Mennonite stomping grounds and I was at their <laughs> conference, and their whole weekend conference 
their main focus was on this issue. Mm. And the men in the conference apologized to the women for not honoring them as image bearers of God like they should have and made this commitment to really pursuing what it looked like to reevaluate what was happening in the church for that reason. Hmm. So I'm liking that trend quite a bit. What I found, Beth, a couple years ago, I did a series here at church on men and women. And one thing that struck me the more I researched was that the Bible doesn't talk about like, do men climb mountains? Do men grow beards? You know, that that type of thing. We have, well, we all think of societally, men are maybe weightlifters. I don't know if that's typical anymore, but at least at one time, you're a logger, you're a lumberjack, you're a cowboy. We have all these images, right, of masculinity. The, the Bible's concept in the discussion of masculinity is almost entirely internal. Mm. Are you a person of integrity? Mm-hmm. That's a man. Mm-hmm. Do you keep your word? That's a man. Do you honor the people around you? That's what real men do. And as you go through, and there's lots of language you can use biblically, but it's almost entirely internal such that you could be a man who is a teacher, a farmer, uh, and now you just you go through whatever you want to add to that. Those Your vocations are not what make you masculine. How you look is not what makes you a man. It has everything to do with your, how your heart and your mind is ordered rightly. Mm-hmm. And so I, that really... That has altered how I've looked at things a lot. And I cringed when you mentioned John Eldridge's book. One of the reasons was that book did not resonate with me. Hmm. Because he'd be like, yeah, me and my buddies went and climbed this mountain. And and the impression I got was, and you should climb mountains if you're a man. Mm -hmm. You should be taking your boys hunting. I don't like to hunt. Mm -hmm. Now what do I do? I take my son bowling Mm -hmm. and fishing and my other son, we go to Johnny Lang concerts, and I'd like them to go see Shakespeare with me, right? <laughs> None of those were in the book. And I talked to another friend of mine who is one of the best men I know. And in one conversation, he said, I just finished finished Eldridge's book, and I feel like a terrible man. Hmm. Like, okay, if you're a terrible man, the issue is with the book. Because mm-hmm. I know you, and I know the quality of the kind of person that you are. So I really cringe when I hear whether it's culturally or in the church, discussions of real men look like this and they attach some crazy, you know, cliff diving, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. I'm far more interested in the internal reality because I think the toxic thing that we talk about, uh, almost all the things I see on lists, and if we want to, we can go through some of the things that people associate with it. Here's one from news18.com. Strength morphs into violence is one example. Mm -hmm. Okay, but strength isn't a bad thing. Mm Mm-hmm. It's it's where your heart is and what you want to do with the strength that is the issue. Assertiveness wraps into entitlement. Stoicism is twisted into emotional stuntedness. Um, here I see this is where men value dominance, power, and control. Others talk about they don't want to be emotionally vulnerable. Almost everything I look at, I go, okay, the issue isn't about how you're built, what your vocation is. Do you have a grill? How big is the grill? None of those things matter. Almost everything has to do with, okay, if you have strength, Mm -hmm. and I think it's safe to say men are generally stronger than women, do you use that strength for the sake of those around you or to get your own way? Mm -hmm. So you're stoic. That can be a good thing depending on the... I was talking with a police officer friend of mine today, and he was describing what his previous day was like. Honestly, I don't know how police officers do it. Mm. The level of depravity and evil and brokenness they see is beyond my ability to understand. Mm. 
okay, you have to have people who in some sense can be stoic to Mm -hmm. do that kind of job. All right. But that's using stoicism in the service of others Mm -hmm. versus using it to hide behind. So everything I look at in these lists about toxic men, and we can get to toxic women also, almost all of them are taking things that are not bad things. And the question is, are you using them in the service of others or are you using them for yourself? Hmm. I think that's a really good litmus test to define that, you know, to take mass. I mean, for me, I think the, the cha- there's two challenges. One is just the underlying take away the toxic. What is masculinity? Mm-hmm. What is femininity? Mm-hmm. And those are loaded topics in and of themselves. For some of the reasons that you just mentioned, mm-hmm. we have, um, there are stereotypical definitions of these things that make them inaccessible to both genders, mm-hmm. you know, so here, here's a stereotype that men aren't supposed to cry or show emotions or share their feelings. Um, you know, ironically, you see Jesus crying all over the place in the Bible and <laughs> right. being very touchy-feely and hanging out with women. And mm-hmm. he's not a very stereotypical masculine man. And, uh, man. and some, some, you know, maybe turning over <laughs> tables in the temple no, and getting no, no. <laughs> One of my pet peeves is around Easter when I see representations of Jesus as just this meek, mild shepherd who loves lambs and little children. Uh-huh. Now, um, did he love children? Absolutely. I mean, there's parts of that in the narrative, but no, the, there's other things that would make people really uncomfortable. He was very confrontational. When when Lazarus died, the Bible records that he, he roared in his grief like he was undone, even though he... And I know you and I have different opinions about the Bible, but work with me here on the narrative. Sure. Even though he knows what's coming yeah. in terms of raising Lazarus, he genuinely enters into the emotion of that moment. Yeah, he's a very complex character, and you're right. Um, we men in the church often don't embrace the fullness of that. Yeah, the, I like the I like the biblical metaphor of like the lion and the lamb. That he is both. That mm-hmm. he is both warrior and uh, tender shepherd, and that that. And I still what appeals to me again is that idea that the range of emotions and attributes are equally accessible to both genders. And if you want to say some of them are masculine and some of them are feminine, fine. To me, though, what's more important is that, you know, there are going to be situations in my life as a woman where I need to be a warrior, where I need Mm -hmm. to be stoic, where I need to be strong, or any of those things that are quote-unquote masculine, just as there are going to be times in your life as a man where you need to be tender Mm -hmm. or gentle or meek or humble, submissive. So I don't find it useful to categorize them in male or female attributes, but if you've done that historically and it's hard for us to get away from those stereotypes, so be it. So long as we have a culture, and I think this is what we're wrestling with now societally, that allows people the ability to access that full range of human emotions and experiences without Mm -hmm. saying, you're a man, that's not how you're supposed to act, or you're a woman, that's not how you're supposed to act. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think we're... I think we're supposed to learn from each other mm-hmm. about how to fill in whatever parts may not come naturally to us. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are ways, you know, men and women's brains are a little different with the gray matter and the white matter and the way men are built. They're built more for combat than women are. I mean, you can go through this list of generalities, but at the end of the day, I, I think the goal is for men and women as a team 
to represent something about the fullness of life. And that means not just like farming out the things we don't have to the other. Right. It doesn't mean that. See, for me, the problem is I think a lot of times, at least what I've heard from Christianity, is that the way you solve that is you bring man and woman together in a traditional Christian marriage, a straight heterosexual marriage, and then they complement each other and fill those gaps. I don't deny that partners can provide a a symmetrical... um, compatibility with each other, that you can help your partner with their weaknesses, but I don't, for me, this isn't my personal Mm -hmm. belief, I don't think that's relegated to heterosexual couples, and I don't think that's just about men filling in what women can't and vice versa. What I take away from it more broadly Mm -hmm. is I like your uh, analogy better of we can all learn from each other mm-hmm. how to fill these things and I don't f I don't have to always be emotional and my partner stoic and that's how we balance each other I can right. learn from my partner mm-hmm. when to be stoic exactly and he can learn from me when mm-hmm. to be emotional <laughs> exactly yeah yeah you made it much more specific than I was intending to with sure. my broader statement that it's it's in everyone that we see, the fullness of who we can be, so to speak. And Mm -hmm. we try to learn and grow even as we recognize people have different strengths. Yeah. I'm enjoying, I don't know if my son AJ listens to this podcast or not, but (laughs) I'm enjoying watching AJ and his bride Kim in their first year of marriage as they're adjusting to how different they are Mm -hmm. and watching. They don't simply say, okay, because I'm like this and you're like this, I'll do all these things and you'll do all things, all these other things. They're looking at it going, okay, how do I participate in this thing that doesn't come naturally to me? How do I watch you and learn from you so that I can become a little bit more like you? Mm-hmm. Which I, I think is the idea of humanity, which it goes back to Genesis, that men and women together, whatever is characterizing them is meant to be in the, it's the fullness that comes from that is what we're called into. Yeah, yeah. it totally does. And I think to... To kind of circle back to this idea of toxic masculinity, I've been thinking about this a lot as you've been talking. I can I can somewhat sympathize. I said earlier I couldn't sympathize. <laughs> I can I can a little bit. That's <laughs> you my, and I have both walked back some things. In I this know. Podcast. Well, that's, that's probably good. That's a good thing. It shows that we're not rigid. Um, I I do in in my best most patient moments. <laughs> I, I do sympathize when my guy friends or, um, you know, my partner, Joe, who's a really, you know, very tremendously progressive feminist guy, you know, th- when they share these fears about being in this era of Me Too and not wanting to, mm. you know, do the wrong thing or, you know, in Joe's case, I've had conversations with him where, you know, he's going out for jobs and all of a sudden, you know, companies are putting more emphasis on diversity and hiring women, hiring minorities, hiring LGBTQ people. And as a white guy, you know, he's, you know, maybe at the back of the line. He celebrates this, you know, he's like, yes, this is probably overdue, but it does sometimes come at a personal cost to white guys, right? And I think the thing that I'm trying to grapple with is that no one likes to be stereotyped and mm-hmm. and no one likes to be told you're this way when you know in your heart that I'm not that guy I'm not the guy who's the me too Harvey Weinstein guy um so I I sympathize with that I think what would be helpful is I think this right now the me too conversation and toxic masculinity 
is this huge pendulum that's swinging. Mm-hmm. I just see it as this huge, heavy pendulum that's kind of clobbering everyone as it swings over to this side. It's it's hard to stop the momentum of it. And I, I am I'm, I am afraid that there is some nuance being lost. I am afraid that some people are going to get clobbered by that pendulum mm-hmm. who don't deserve to be just because of the way that they look or because they're part of a broader culture right. that has done society wrong. Um, so I don't want to be another person who perpetuates injustice by saying to every guy I see, you know, you're a terrible me too guy. Right. I don't think that is the answer to the problem. And that, Beth, I think is you're circling back to why some of my friends had real issues with the ad because they felt like that's kind of what it was doing, which is saying if you're a guy... These are your issues that you struggle with. Yeah. Because what I am afraid of is that if we take an all-or-nothing approach and the pendulum clobbers everyone, innocent or guilty alike, then the innocent, it's, it's kind of like radical anything. The innocent can become radicalized. I had a weird thing happen with this recording, and that is suddenly, uh, though my computer was showing that we were recording, we lost audio. So we do not have the last 10 minutes or so of the discussion that Beth and I had. I think what we have captures the main idea of where we were going with this conversation. Uh, I hope that you have found it to be thought-provoking. You can follow us more at etc.tc.blogspot.com. Thanks for listening.